I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in London this week is Nicholas McGore, our retail banking correspondent. And down the line from New York, we're joined by Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, and Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. This week, we'll be looking at Wells Fargo as it seeks to battle its way back from scandal, a catch-up with the results on Wall Street, and finally, a look at open banking in the UK one year after it was brought in. First, though, Wells Fargo. It's been called the best bank in the world, including by its chief executive, but it's still struggling to recover from the scandal that engulfed it a couple of years ago when previous management oversaw a scandal there when millions of accounts were alleged to have been fabricated. Well, we caught up recently with Tim Sloan, who is the chief executive these days of Wells Fargo, And he started off by telling us how it is, in fact, the best bank in the world and why his job is the greatest job in the world. Here's how he explained it. This is the best bank in the world. We are going through a challenging period. We've been in business for 166 years. It always hasn't been, right, an easy time, right? I mean, this is, I I mean, I, I know that sounds crazy, but it's not. Now, despite a partial recovery of Wells's business, there's a regulatory growth cap that remains in place and which some commentators believe will remain in place as long as Tim Sloan, who's been with the bank for many years and was in a senior management position when the scandal took place, remains chief executive. So should he go? The decision as to whether or not I'm going to be the CEO of this company is made by the board. And, you know, we'll talk about it. Right? I have no plans to leave. And my job is to execute on what I promised that we're going to do. And, you know, if some stakeholders are not happy with me, they can voice their opinion. That's a free country. They can absolutely do that. But it doesn't really impact, I think, how our board thinks about my performance. They're going to think about my performance based upon the performance. And likewise, right, it's not impacting how I think about how the company should be run. We finished off by asking Mr. Sloan about the growth rate of the bank now and the extent to which it seems to be running at about half the rate it was before the scandal. Why is that? And will there be permanent damage? Well, I think it's a function of sales practices. It's a function of the competition, right? Because it's not as if all of our competitors have stood still and we haven't. So I think it's a function of... The challenges that we've had, whether they're sales practices or not, is whether in the competition. I think the hangover is over with. I mean, I think that the trajectory that we're on is a good one. You know, my guess in the next year or two, we'll be back to where we were from 2016. I mean, I, my expectation is that, you know, all of our businesses should be able to grow at, you know, plus or minus the underlying GDP. So, 
you know, again, our growth is about double what it was a year ago on primary checking. Yeah. I don't know if it'll be double next year, but it's, you know, going in the right trajectory. Now, let's go over to Rob and Laura, who did that interview. Rob, you join us just having listened to Wells Fargo's fourth quarter results. Is there anything in there to prove or disprove Tim Sloan's confidence about the outlook for Wells Fargo? It clearly remains a significant struggle for this bank to grow, both on the funding side in deposits and on the asset side of the balance sheet. The loan portfolio is barely growing. The deposit base is flat to shrinking. There are green shoots of growth at this bank, but you have to look pretty hard to find them. So, for example, loans to businesses grew at almost 5% this quarter. That was a real acceleration. But the overall picture is one where this bank is hardly growing at all and is depending on essentially cost control to protect profits. And is that enough to protect Tim Sloan's own job? I think it's enough, certainly, if Tim Sloan, as promised, can get the Fed's asset cap off of the bank by the first half of this year. If that doesn't happen, at the same time as the political pressure driven primarily by opportunistic politicians running for the Democratic nomination builds up, then I think there could be increasing questions about Tim Sloan's future as the leader of Wells Fargo. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that as the year progresses. Thanks very much, Rob. Let's stick now with the New York Bureau, because, Laura, you've been taking a look at the results of JP Morgan, which have come hot on the heels of yesterday's numbers from Citigroup. And Citi rather set the tone for some downbeat expectations for Wall Street. What happened there and what has happened at JP? Citi was a bit of a mixed bag yesterday. Yes, they did badly in some areas, particularly fixed income trading, where they were down 21% in the quarter to end December versus a year earlier. Where actually their shares responded pretty well. Their shares rose around 3%. And I think people were relieved it hadn't been worse. City had also kind of set the bar pretty low going in. And City did manage to beat expectations. We had a different story at JP Morgan Chase today. JP Morgan Chase missed what looks like only the first time JP Morgan Chase has missed earnings since 2014. The targets were a bit messy, but they missed them by pretty much every measure in terms of net income and also in terms of revenue. Fixed income was a big drag for them as well. They were down 16%. That was a surprise to people because we kind of knew City was having a pretty tough time. I think people will recall there was a story in December about City's fixed income division losing up to $180 million on this Asian hedge fund trade gone wrong. So City people were prepared for a bad time, especially in markets. People didn't really think JP Morgan would be down by double-digit percentages in fixed income. On their media call and analyst call, they said that basically market conditions deteriorated very, very fast. We asked them, how was the bank positioned in terms of future quarters? Should the bank be looking to reshape its fixed income business given the conditions we're in? The CFO, Marianne Lake, was very firm on that. She said that one quarter does not make a trend and they haven't seen anything in the markets that would make them want to change the shape of their business. They're very much buying down the hashes. The other thing was, City appeared to be a bit more responsive to market conditions. City's pay fell by around $300 million year on year. That was around, I think, 6%. JP Morgan Chase actually increased pay across the whole bank by about 4% year on year in the final quarter. 
Now, Marianne Lake did say that pay was down in markets. She wouldn't say how much by, but it looks as if City was maybe a bit more responsive to the changing market conditions than JP Morgan was. That's interesting. I suppose a final thought from you then. We haven't had the full results from Wall Street yet. Uh, still a couple outstanding. But on the evidence of the results so far, particularly the kind of fixed income disappointments at City and JP, what does that suggest that the European banks have in store when they report a few weeks from now? I'm thinking particularly about the big fixed income houses, obviously, of Barclays and Deutsche. So you talk about the big fixed income houses, but they are a lot smaller than they would previously have been. So I think, yes, it means bad news in terms of what their fixed income businesses will give. But I mean, they're coming off of a very low base. So we've seen such big falls in the fixed income businesses of the Europeans thus far that actually a 20% fall in fixed income revenue at Deutsche, at Barclays, doesn't move the dial nearly as much for the entire firm as it would have previously Barclays is also a bit of a special case. They have quite a different business mix within their fixed income, so they sometimes do differently to the rest of the pack. So I would be a bit cautious around Barclays necessarily following the same trends that we've seen for City and for JP Morgan Chase. And for Deutsche, I think what you have to do is just look back at the consecutive quarters. They've already seen a lot of big drops, so certainly bad for FIC, but I wouldn't think it's going to be too bad given the fact that their fixed income business are now a lot smaller. Very good. Well, something to look forward to in the next few weeks. In the meantime, thanks very much, Laura. Let's look for our third and final segment today at Open Banking. Now, this is the UK phenomenon that came in a year ago, which was designed basically to boost competition in the UK finance market by making it easier for upstart financial technology companies, fintech companies, to create a kind of open architecture that allows you as a consumer to link into all of your financial products and services through one front end. Well, I caught up yesterday with Nick McGore, who's our retail banking correspondent, to review exactly what's gone on over the past year. And I started by asking him what exactly is open banking and how has it gone in its first 12 months? Well, it starts with this European legislation called the Payment Services Directive, which forces banks to share their data with their rivals and other fintechs. So if I was a fintech company, for example, you could access banking data and say, it looks like you're spending too much money each month on your overdrafts. Why don't you swap to this product instead? So in that way, it's supposed to increase competition. Open banking in the UK specifically provides a sort of more formal set of standards to help people achieve that. So in theory, that means if you make a product that can connect to one British bank, it shouldn't take too much for it to also connect to everyone else in the market, which is supposed to help boost competition. So far, there aren't that many of those products available. So has it been a failure? Would you go that far? I think how big a success it is depends on what your expectations were. If you were hoping for an immediate revolution and in a sense, it's possible that some people overhyped it a little bit a year ago and said it was going to be the biggest shakeup in retail banking in decades. If that's your standard, then yeah, it's not met that. But I think most of the people behind it would say that it was inevitably going to take a while for stuff to get off the ground. Firstly, they've got a big logistical challenge of all the banks just to make this tech available. 
And then even if you're a nimble little startup, it's still going to take you some time once that data is available to work out what to do with it and how to use it and how to create new products. So there's a kind of classic adage that the impact of new technologies is overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. And I think a lot of people are a year in thinking that's probably going to apply to open banking. Are there any metrics that we can use to judge how successful or unsuccessful it's been then? If you look in raw numbers of companies, there's something like 100 fintechs and bigger providers that have signed up to offer some sort of service through the open banking network. And that goes for everyone from little startups who you've probably never heard of up to people like Citigroup who started using it fairly early on after it was introduced last year. But for a sense of the longer term potential impact... I think one of the interesting measures is how many other countries have been watching and taking notes and trying to do similar things for themselves. So as I mentioned before, the rest of Europe has got related rules coming in soon, although without the central standards body. But you've got countries including Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, all working towards their own kind of initiatives. One final thing, Nick, there has been concern expressed around the safety of open banking or rather around the potential risks associated with big companies opening up their systems to small fintechs that might not be perhaps as robust in terms of their systems. Are those risks justified, do you think? You can certainly understand where people's concerns would come from on these issues when the idea of sharing your data with lots of different companies sounds almost like the exact opposite of what we're being told is good practice. The guys behind Open Banking and PST2 are very aware of this. Actually, a lot of these functionalities have been possible for years, sort of just from a purely technical standpoint, but you actually had to put in your bank username and password. That is going to be banned from September under the European regulation, so that should make things much safer. But I think a lot of the fintechs would agree that they believe that the systems have got enough checks, but the issue is going to be convincing people that they're enough. Yeah, absolutely. It's still early days, as you say, and it looks like people need to be persuaded of both the merits and the safety of this. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Nick here in London and Rob and Laura in New York and also Tim Sloan at Wells Fargo. Thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.